Is sports media capable of being objective at all? It's been a while since we've been together. We've got a lot to get into, and the coach is coming for the host seat this week on Iceman and Coach. What's up, beautiful people? Welcome back to another episode of the Iceman and Coach Sports Show. It has been a while. I am back from overseas. I said my man, the coach, was coming for the host seat. Coach, it is great to see your face. How you doing, buddy? Iceman, it has been a while, but I'm glad to be back. Glad you are back. Glad you had a good and happy and successful trip. Uh, made it home safely. I know you had a few bumps in the road along the way. Uh, maybe we'll get into that later. But no, I'm just here, man, to keep the seat warm when you're away. Uh, it's definitely glad to have you back. Nice to have you back and uh, looking forward to getting into it. You say that you're here to keep my seat warm, but last week you did quite a fantastic job interviewing our friends uh, over the pond, Tall Boy Radio. You guys talked about a lot of different things and listening to it as an outsider, I wouldn't know that you weren't the host of this show. So I think you did a fantastic job and a big shout out to the boys over there at Tall Boy, Beans and Gaz. You guys were great for coming on and providing a little bit of different perspective than I think that we here at Iceman and Coach are used to providing to our loyal listeners. So I thought it was a good time, but did you have a good time with the boys? Yeah, I love those guys. Uh, that's probably the third time I've had the opportunity to record with them. Um, third or fourth, really. And it's a blast every time. They're just super dudes. And then anytime we talk sports, it's like we get carried away just because we keep going down the rabbit hole. And I think they're just as fascinated in our perspective as we are in their perspective and just bouncing stuff back and forth. And you're right. They had some interesting takes on um, specifically the NFL in London and how that might look uh, moving forward. I was kind of surprised a bit by their takes, but it, that's exactly why we talked about it is to get a perspective from someone who's over there and who loves the NFL and see what they think. I think the perspective that you guys touched on that I was thinking as I was listening to it was the fact that the NFL is still a novelty to them because it's something that comes by, what, twice a year maybe? They don't have the same oversaturation of the market. And while you and I get oversaturated with the NFL, we love the NFL here. We have Red Zone. We can watch every game. It's terrific. But if you place a franchise there, it doesn't necessarily mean that it would be successful. And I thought that there was a lot of validity to what they said about, hey, I'm a Bears fan. I'm a Steelers fan. And we're not only bought into the NFL team, we're bought into the city itself. I have to say that I appreciated hearing that as somebody who grew up in Rhode Island and New England sports was huge. That fan loyalty means a lot. And I never wavered in my fandom with the teams that I like and grew up with, even though I moved here and I haven't lived up there for a long time. So I thought it was cool to hear them say that, but also the financial implications of a team in London, the travel implications, like it's not a lot or it's, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than I think your average fan would like you to think that it is. And it's a lot on the players. It's a lot on the franchise that ever goes over there. And I thought that it was an interesting perspective for sure. But they also mentioned the fact that apparently NFL fans are tame compared to English Premier League football fans. I found that to be interesting because I always think NFL fans are out of their fucking mind. Oh, I know. And that's what I was trying to tell them because it sounds like any time that there is an NFL game over there in London or somewhere in England or Europe in general, that it's more of a fan fest, right? It's different different fans wearing different jerseys and celebrating the NFL as a whole. Uh, probably similar to what you'd see here at maybe like the Super Bowl or something like that. And I was like, guys, it's not like that here. And then, you know, kind of it clicked in my head. I'm like, it's probably very similar to what you experience 
uh, was soccer. And as they told a few stories, I was like, okay, like soccer might be a little over the top compared to even what football is here in some of the worst cases. But my favorite part was hearing Gaz say, there will be bother if uh, there are two opposing jerseys walking past each other on the road. Yeah, I certainly thought that was amusing as well. And especially when you talk about Raiders fans and how crazy they are, or at least the way that we perceive that they are. I, I just always think of them as kind of crazy. But if you are a Raiders fan or if you are a fan of the EPL and you have some football or soccer fan stories, don't forget to call the show 703-718-6314. That is, again, 703-718-6314. We'd love to hear your stories. Call the show anytime. But the other thing that you guys talked about, too, was relegation. And I've always been intrigued by this particular instance of or this particular part of English Premier League soccer or football. And I think that it's so interesting for the competitive balance because here in the United States, it's mostly money driven. And Gaz did kind of speak to that pretty eloquently that in the United States and with U.S. professional sports, I mean, the owners are about making money. And well, of course, they're about making money over there. There's a pride, a country pride that comes in with it. And that's something that's not prevalent here. Like the New York Jets don't care about winning for the U.S. or anything like that. Whereas if you're Everton, you don't want to be relegated because you're letting down an entire squad. You're letting down an entire area, possibly even an entire country. And so there's just those factors don't exist. But I wanted to ask you in the NFL, because I think the NFL would be the most intriguing one for relegation. What are some teams that should have been relegated by now? Oh, my goodness. I mean, a lot of people, the first one that maybe pops in your head is a team like the Browns. Um, as much as it pains me the last 20 years or 30 years or so, you could say the Lions. I mean, there's a handful of them. Jets. Uh, and the Jets. Yeah, sorry, Cleve. Uh, <laughs> the, frick, the fucking Jets. Jacksonville. I mean, other than a few blips on the radar here and there. The Texans. The Texans, yeah. What's the most fascinating is that the relegation, there's not like, there's not a league or there's not a sport here in America that's really set up for relegation to work. No. Just because of the way the sports are structured and over there every club is a independently owned club that is a part of a league and i'm sure obviously there's a hierarchy and there's not the minor league system or anything like that it's just and they all play in similarly sized stadiums i assume so it makes logistically it's probably a fairly fairly easy transition to move up move down it doesn't change a whole lot we're here it's just especially in baseball with the farm system and football i mean yeah you, you have the xfl and usfl but i mean they play by different rules so it's i mean i, I it's honestly the one that would be the more, most practical which won't happen at least anytime soon would be if you um if the power college football programs broke off and did like their own independent league that wasn't necessarily affiliated with universities alabama i guess could go up and the browns could slide down into college football or something like that yeah i'm just imagining this year the bears have the first pick or had the first pick and they'd be down there playing Tennessee every year in the SEC or, you know, next year. And that part of it, I, yeah, I, we, I don't think we'll ever get there. I was talking with my brother-in-law, Mike, who was on the big game broadcast with us a couple months ago. And the financial setup here in the United States for professional sports, I mean, in the NFL specifically, and you nailed it, the owners all own the commissioner. They're all part of this league and there's unions around this. And I'm sure there are unions over there too, but each of these franchises is not part of this larger conglomerate. And I think there's no way that we would ever get to that point. Not to mention the professional athletes make a lot of money, but it's not 
the same over there. I, I, there's something about it where they even pointed out, like the World Cup comes around, their professional team is off to the side and it's not even a discussion. There's not even a discussion of we're not playing in this, it's we are playing in this and it's understood. It's sort of an unwritten rule to use a baseball term over there where you know that your your league is going to shut down. And you, I think you guys talked about the NHL. You might've mentioned it, but Gary Bettman, commissioner of the NHL, basically said that our players are not allowed to go to the Olympics. So there were no professional players from the NHL in the Olympics this past time. I mean, there were former players and retired players, but it was amateur players. And, you know, there's some merit to that too, but it's the professional leagues in this country. It's about making money and they've got to preserve their product. And over there, the product is more tied to national pride. And I think I like that better. I do too. And I wonder how that sits with uh, some of the players from other countries that are in the NHL, because they're not, there's a fair amount of uh, Native Americans, you know, in the NHL. Obviously what I mean is people, American citizens, right? But there are a lot of Russian or Eastern European, Canadian players that play in the NHL. And I wonder how that sits with them if being told they can't go play for their country, because I have to imagine, at least based off the conversation I had with Beans and Gaz, that it, it is something that's very ingrained in their culture, especially you know, I know Canada, they're very proud of their hockey. That's their chance to showcase it on the world stage. And I just very curious. But at the same time, like we've said over and over again, money talks. Yeah, money does talk. And speaking of franchises that should have been relegated a long time ago and that are apparently worth a lot of money, the Washington Commanders were recently sold. Dan Snyder, I would probably say outside of Jerry Jones is probably the most infamous owner in the league. And infamous is not a term that I'm using in a positive spin. Really, his entire ownership of that of that team has been a disaster. They haven't won anything. They've had tons of accusations of terrible workplace uh, environments and things like that. He's been taking money from the owners. Just everything has gone wrong. It's been poorly run from the start. And finally, Dan Snyder is out of the DC metropolitan area. And I know that it's going to be like in Star Wars when they celebrate the emperor dying at the end of Return of the Jedi. Yeah, what was it? Just a just a cool six billion, right? Isn't that what they uh, sold for? That's insane, isn't it? It's it's fascinating to me, and I don't know how many people think of it this way, but it used to be that one guy would buy a team, right? Like if you look at the owners around the league, it is a majority one person or a single owner, but they've owned those teams for a long time. Now it's a team. You can't buy an NF an NF. Uh, you can't buy an NFL franchise without multiple people. I don't know if you saw some of the names on there, but Magic Johnson, how many parts of franchises does he have now? Yeah, that's quite a few. And I don't know. I wish it was just one person. I like the idea of having one sole owner. Now I understand that the money makes that tough because you get these groups in there and it just gets weird and I'm sure wishy-washy, whatever. It's just not an, an intriguing to me. I, I want to have an owner that I can tie things back to, like one sole person to hold responsible to either love or to hate or to blame. With these groups, you don't really get that. Yeah, but the prices of these franchises are going up to exorbitant levels. I mean, $6 billion. And that's insane. And you think about recently, WWE just sold or merged with UFC, and they were valued at $9 billion, a professional wrestling company at $9 billion. And there's no way that one person could afford that. I mean, even Bezos probably knows, I can afford it, but I'm not going to afford it. Elon Musk paid $44 billion for Twitter. He's regretting that, I'm sure, all the way to the bank. And I just find it interesting. But I think the part that I, I will find more interesting is to see, will this organization be managed better? Will they actually start to win? Because I do believe that bad ownership does make for bad organizational structure. And when you look around the league, 
the owners that do less, which means they sign the checkbook, right? They don't meddle. Generally, those franchises tend to be more successful. Bob Kraft in New England never really got in the way and they won six Super Bowls out of it. The owner of the Chiefs, I can't remember his name. Right now he's signing checks because he's got Mahomes. They're winning. An owner that can't seem to get out of his own way, Jim Ursay, you know, the, the results have varied in Indianapolis. So I think that there's there's examples on both sides, but I I thought it was intriguing that he's selling. But had it not been for all the other extracurriculars over the last few years, there's no way he sells that team. So this one's obviously kind of a higher profile selling of a franchise because of being Dan Snyder and, and all his antics. Yeah. A couple of things here. One is I saw a chart earlier today and I wish I knew where it was. I'd pull it up real quick. But it showed what the what dollar amount every franchise sold for the last time they were sold. And the Bears, I think, whenever they the or the Hallis, whoever the fuck it is owns them now. The McCaskies, maybe whatever family owns it. Like I mean, they bought them. I thought it was the Bears or something, but I mean, they bought it for like fifty dollars or something. I mean, it's like so. I mean, it's like a minute amount of money because it was a hundred years ago. And it's just funny looking through that list and how uh, small the amounts some of these teams sold for. But what I what I initially was asking is. Has there been a team that's been sold and had a significant improvement in the on the field product that you could? Because like ones throughout sports in general, ones that stick out in my mind that I know had sold at some point, like the Miami Marlins, right? That's one that wasn't Magic Johnson involved in that too. Maybe, maybe not. Jeter, Derek Jeter. Yeah, I feel like ever since that happened, they've been terrible. Uh, I mean, and they were sort of like the Rays and the A's, you know, they were good for a, a World Series run every, you know, couple years. They'd get, you know, they'd get wiped out by the Yankees and the Red Sox and whoever else wanted to come in and pluck the players away and they just recycle and do it over again. Uh, they've definitely kind of lost that. I'm trying to think of any other teams that have sold recently and kind of how it's gone. I don't know if there's any that stick out in your mind. There have been franchises that have sold. I mean, the Phoenix Suns just sold to a new owner and he went out and traded for Kevin Durant and they're going to try to win the NBA title. So they're making some win win now moves and they were in the NBA finals a couple of years ago. Uh, there haven't been a lot of franchises that have sold recently, if you think about it, because they just don't sell that often. I mean, owners have to be basically peeled out of there by either racism or sexism or whatever, right? It takes something like that. And sometimes it takes even more than that. Think about everything that Dan Snyder had to do in order to get or be forced to sell his team. I mean, it's a laundry list. You and I would have been in jail by now. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I see your point, though, like because but sometimes new ownership, though, is, again, a different direction. I mean, you get these people that have owned these teams forever. The Ford family has owned the Detroit Lions forever and has literally nothing to show for it. And what happens if that changes? What happens if there is new management there? Because I think that, again, it's top-down management. And in this particular case, I think when you have such a toxic owner or an owner that seems to not be able to do anything positive, any change has to be considered positive. And in that division, if they can do one or two things right, I think they can step right in and make some moves. So maybe it's a different culture. And sometimes maybe that's what you need. But in our lifetime, there haven't been many sales of teams that have actually mattered because Jerry Jones is going to have to die. But then his son's going to take over for it. So like the Jones family is going to own this in perpetuity for however long it happens. It's just a rarity. And I think in this case, because it's Dan Snyder, it was worth talking about. But it is what it is, and we'll see what happens. I still think the Commanders are a terrible organization until they prove otherwise. However, in their division, there is an organization being run very, very well, and that is the Philadelphia Eagles. 
just made the Super Bowl, should have won the Super Bowl probably. That was your pick of the week, your final pick of the week. They let you down. Not only did they not cover, they lost, but they did something very, very intelligent, or at least what I think is intelligent, and they signed their quarterback, Jalen Hurts. Today, as a matter of fact, I believe he's now the highest paid quarterback in the league at 51 mil per year, got $179 million guaranteed. Not only do I think this is a good idea, I think more interestingly enough, I want to get your point on this. I think this is a bad thing for Lamar Jackson. I think this is a really bad thing for Lamar Jackson. I think the longer this all plays out, the worse for Lamar Jackson it is. I saw a report the other day that said he was sort of making demands of what he thought players that he wanted them to sign before he would sign or something. I don't know if there's any truth to that. I might be making it up. I I think that the writing's on the wall a little bit for Lamar Jackson. I mean, Like I said, the longer it goes on, the worse off I think it is for him. This certainly is not good for him. I do think that this is a great move by the Eagles. Jalen Hurts, a young, talented quarterback. I doubted him early on. I was not a believer. Prove me wrong. I mean, the guy's a freaking winner. And to to watch what he did, especially this year down the stretch, was really impressive. He'll be the highest paid quarterback in the NFL until the next big one's signed. And it just keeps going on and on and on, right? Every every guy has to do do their diligence for the next guy, right? 100%. I mean, the guys that are following him are guys like Joe Burrow. Obviously, he's going to get paid a lot of money. But Jalen Hurts, I think you're right. One of the things about Jalen Hurts, I think that is such a good signing in this particular aspect is the fact that the Eagles have done well organizationally. And that's why I segued from the commanders to the Eagles, because they put an elite team around him. They have maximized the strengths to make it easier for him to play quarterback in this league. And say what you want about that. There's a lot of people who have discounted that. But isn't that what you want? This is your guy. So let's make it as easy as possible for him to do what he does best, which is run the football, not turn the ball over. That's what got the Eagles to where they were, and it got them to where they almost won the Super Bowl. I mean, if it wasn't for that fumble, Chiefs might not be in the game at halftime. The the rest could be history. But I say this is bad for Lamar because his stance up until now has been, I want to get what Deshaun Watson has gotten which was what, like $230 million guaranteed. And now the quarterback or one of the quarterbacks of the future took his team to a Super Bowl, nearly won an MVP, nearly won a Super Bowl MVP, just got 180 mil guaranteed. That's why I say it's bad for Lamar because that is the bar. This is the guy now. Lamar has no leverage for that. No, he doesn't. And let me ask you this question, and I don't know the answer, but someone comes along and they say, tell me what the difference is between Jalen Hurts and Lamar Jackson. Why do you sign Jalen Hurts for this money? And like we said, it's less than what he's been asking for, but why do you sign Jalen Hurts for this, but you won't pay Lamar Jackson that? What do you think that is? I think Lamar Jackson has a higher ceiling, right? I think his explosiveness is a little bit higher, but I think they won't pay Lamar that money because he has missed a lot of football. And I know that that's a tired argument that people are making, but it's true. Your best ability is availability. And if you're not on the field, it becomes harder to justify paying you the kind of money that he is asking for. $240 million, whatever it was for Deshaun Watson, the Browns blindly gave that to a quarterback who hadn't played football in two years and obviously had the other stuff. We're not going to get into that. Lamar doesn't have any of that, but he has had injury issues. And when he's healthy, he's an MVP candidate and an MVP winner. But when he's not, the team still wins without him. That's the issue. The Eagles didn't win without Jalen Hurts this year. And guess what? He comes up for an extension and you've got to pay the guy or you have to decide to move on. There's no way that Philadelphia was moving on. Now, the Ravens, on the other hand, have been handed a shitty deck because Lamar Jackson is asking for the kind of money that no team is going to give him. And so they're doing the right thing. 
Lamar's doing the right thing, trying to get his money. But at some point, it's got to work itself out. And I think the more time, as you said, that goes by, less and lesser teams going to pony up the dough to get him because, hey, by the way, here's Jalen Hurts and all the other quarterbacks behind him. And Joe Burrow, is Joe Burrow going to get 240 mil guaranteed? Because if he doesn't, Lamar Jackson's not going to get it either. No, I agree with you. I still can't believe that the Browns signed the Sean Watson for $240 million guarantee. That's absolutely insane. I did see also, uh, I mean, I see people throwing out all these trade things and stuff like that. I saw it was like a Colts fan page was like, the Colts could trade these five people for Lamar. I'm like, don't get me wrong. I'd take them for the right price uh, for sure, but not $240 million and, and certainly not what they just paid Jalen Hurts, not a $179 guaranteed. No, I don't think so. Not at all. I think the hang up is the fact that it's not only money that you have to give up, but it's draft picks too. two first rounders. So not only do you automatically have to pay them a lot of money, but you got to give up draft capital. Now you can have a debate or we could have a debate on how valuable is draft capital in the future. I know that the draft is a big deal. The draft is coming up in what, two weeks. You and I are not going to talk about it. We're not really big draft people, but I always question how valuable draft picks are to a certain extent, because I know that a lot of teams value them and they keep them. But then you could have the Rams model where you sell out all your draft picks to get Matt Stafford. You win a Super Bowl. It's automatically worth it. And if you're a team that is starving for a quarterback, but you have pieces around you that could actually win a Super Bowl with the right guy behind center, why wouldn't you make that move? Is the draft capital really that valuable to you? Maybe the money is actually a bigger hit. I think it's all very fascinating. And I'm not sure we're going to have a perfect storm of this ever again, because what the Ravens did by having him or non-tendering him or whatever it was, I can't remember the exact term, but they basically made it that he was a non-exclusive tender. He can go out and do whatever he wants and they can match it. So they have a lot of leverage here and no other team has stepped into the plate because I think it's a heavy price to pay. But a team like the Colts, as you said, for the right price, I mean, they should do it because they haven't had a quarterback in like a decade. Yeah, they're just renting one every year is what it amounts to. You know, I think about draft picks like poker chips at a casino. And yeah, they're worth something, but they're not worth what you want them to be worth unless you know how to use it properly. And even if you play the game exactly the way it's supposed to be played and stack as many odds as you can in your favor, there's still no guarantee on return. And yeah, like obviously you're giving yourself a better chance the more you follow proper strategy or do your homework or know what you're doing, but there's no guarantee at all. And it is tough, man. I mean, I think draft picks are valuable. I'm not as crazy about, you know, these, you know, look at how many times the Cleveland Browns have been the number one pick. You know what I mean? They've just fucked it up over and over again. And you could say it's them. You could say Johnny Manziel is a great college quarterback. But I think at the same time, almost everyone in America could realize that the guy had some problems. Everybody but the people that were in their draft room, <laughs> you know, and it worked out the way it worked out. And I don't know that there was anybody that was surprised by that, but I think it's worth it. It's worth it to have draft picks, especially I think when it comes time for something like this, you have those picks you can use to make trades uh, to improve your team to win now and stuff. But I mean, it's a delicate dance, no doubt about it. Yeah, but in the NFL, it's a win now league. And so if you have the chance to make that happen or at least come closer to making it happen, if all odds were even, every team would win a Super Bowl once every 32 years, but the odds are not even. And sometimes you have to take a risk. And that's why I say there's a lot of teams out there who I feel as if they are perfect candidates for Lamar Jackson and they're just not doing it. Not really sure why, but I think we'll see that unfold. Like I said, the draft is coming up. 
We're not going to discuss it here on the show. However, if you want to go for some draft analysis, you can listen to Political Football on the Maddie S Media Network because Dave and Scott do talk about position-specific draft talk, and I think we'll see what it is. I know I will know who's on the team for the Patriots week one. I always say that. That's my thing. My father will ask me, are you going to watch the preseason? No, I never watch the preseason. I'll find out who's there week one. Yeah, I, I've never been crazed about the preseason. I'll check out a game here and there just to get my football fix. Or maybe if there's a, a rookie quarterback, you want you want to see him get a series or two or something. But other than that, yeah, I have no interest in watching guys who are going to be bagging groceries in a week. Excellent point by you. Let's move on to a sport that we've tangentially touched on here. And I think this is probably one of the meatier topics of, of this week's episode. And it was the women's final four. I want to make one point before we get into this, because I know that you have some thoughts on it and there's a lot to unpack here and we're, we're not going to be able to get to all of it or maybe even eloquently, eloquently talk about it. But I want to say, first off, I love the fact that this year, the women's March Madness for women's college basketball finally got the kind of shine and press that I think it should have gotten comparable to the men because they're playing just as hard, they're working just as hard. And I've noticed all of a sudden that when you give the kind of exposure and you give it the same kind of treatment where you put it on in prime time, isn't it interesting, Brad, that a lot of people watched the national championship, a lot of people watched the Final Four, and I think women's college basketball has always been seen as, well, it's not as fun or it's 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 boring. Let me tell you something. Watching those games, where there's a lot of personality out there, a lot of competitors out there. And isn't that why we watch sports in the first place? And I loved seeing that. I just wanted to make that point that point outright because it just I thought it was fantastic basketball. No, you're right. I mean, women have always been skilled at playing the game of basketball. What you said it, man, the personalities. There were some personalities and some characters within NCAA women's basketball this year. And that's really what sold it. It really helped that you had one of those people on sort of an underdog team that made a big run to the national championship game. And then obviously, you know, LSU brought what they brought to the table, a great team with a very unique coach. And there's just personality by the truckload of that national championship game. It was great. It was great to see it play on the national stage. It was great to see so many people interested in it. And really, controversy or not, I mean, it's good for women's basketball. It's good for women's sports that people talked about it for a month. Yeah, but the sad part, though, for me, and this is getting into what I think may be the delicate part, is coming out of that game, all we're talking about is not the basketball game. We're talking about other stuff. I just want to set the stage here. Coming into this Final Four, you had Virginia Tech, who I'd have to give a shout out to the Lady Hokies, first ever Final Four. They had a chance to win against LSU. They couldn't put it together. And it is what it is. And you have LSU, Kim Mulkey, national championship winning coach, batshit crazy human being, but she is a virtuoso coach and you can't really take that away from her in her home state, second year at LSU in the Final Four. It's an achievement. I'm not personally happy for her, but it's an achievement in terms of coaching. And then you had South Carolina and you had Iowa. Now, Iowa is a team that's not been on anybody's radar outside of the fact that they have one of the most electric players in probably the last 10 or 15 years in Caitlin Clark. And South Carolina came in undefeated. Don Staley has gone from WNBA star back in the day to being an, a great coach. I mean, she's going to be the next Gino R.E.M. of the way that she is recruiting, the way that that team is playing. And you had so many storylines heading into it. Caitlin Clark taking it to South Carolina, beating an undefeated team. 
it was an amazing performance. And then you got Kim Mulkey, of course, making it to the final. And it's a it's a final that's set up with a lot of intrigue. You have two players on each side, Angel Reese, Caitlin Clark. Both of these girls have a lot of attitude. They're competitors. And isn't that what we want in our sports figures? They're it's 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 a competition. They're out here competing. This is not, I think a lot of times we want or the media wants women to act the way that they always should have, right? Back in the 50s. And it's like Caitlin Clark trash talks, Angel Reese trash trash talks. But yet somehow the narrative on both sides, depending on who you listen to, is just all warped and screwed up. And it's dumb. It's dumb. Because both of these players should be allowed to have attitude. They should be allowed to show, I mean, maybe, yeah, disrespect to the other team. But when you're fucking good and you know it, isn't there a little bit of that in your in your sports leaders? Like the GOATs, they have a little bit of asshole in them. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And and my opinion on the situation since it happened has sort of evolved in a good way, which I think is is in a healthy way. Let's put it that way. When it happened initially, the incident in the national championship game at the end with Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark, I think I didn't react so much because I didn't even see it live. I saw everything blown up on social media. And when I first saw it itself, I'm like, well, whatever. Like, hey, you, you don't like that shit happening to you? Play better, right? Uh, which Caitlin Clark, I don't think at any point ever complained about it. Not once. But it was like like we do in this country. Someone, uh, people want to get mad on someone's behalf and be offended. It didn't take long for a race to enter the arena, right? I think it was more so the initial defense of certain members of the media of Angel Reese's actions and tying race into it that kind of got me initially fired up about it. I'm like, why is this even a race issue? This is not a race issue. Too many people have fought too hard and too long to end racism. And you're lit. I mean, why are you making this a race thing? It's not a race thing. And so I think the fact that you had people coming out trying to bringing racism into a situation that wasn't racist brought out the other end of it that wanted to sit there and argue that, it, that race was a part of it. And I mean, it's been I'm at the point now where I've evolved to, like you said, two great competitors and in Angel Reese's case, a competitor, a national champion celebrating in the moment. And some people say, well, they were up by 15 points, blah, 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 blah. Who cares? Who cares, man? Like you could say you don't like that kind of stuff, that flashy stuff. I'm not crazy about that stuff, but like I get it. You're you're emotional. They're they're kids still, you know. Yeah, they're young adults caught up in the moment, winning a big game, winning something they've been working all year for, maybe all their lives for. It's not like she walked up and slapped her in the face or gave her the middle finger or anything like that. I mean, it, it was it was a celebration and let them sit there. I don't know. It's just part of the game. It's part of sports. It's part of being competitive. I don't have an issue with it. Everybody's still all fired up and butthurt about it, I'm sure, to some degree. Move on. Grow up. Put your big boy, big girl pants on. Get over it. Move on. Because in most cases, it has absolutely nothing to do with you or with the things you're arguing about. No, but if I can bring this a little bit to the forefront, and I think Don Staley's comments after their loss were important to this discussion because you talked about bringing race into things that maybe don't seem like race should be a part of. And along this whole year, there have been some people, media people and some coaches in the NCAA who have made comments about playing South Carolina. And they have used language that has historically meant black, right? Playing like thugs, playing like villains, things like that. And Gino Auriemma himself this year using language like that. And I think that sometimes there is just an old pattern of how we have talked about things that sometimes 
can come up and it is very sensitive. And I think with this Caitlin Clark thing, the week before or the game before, remember she was at the three-point line waving off South Carolina because they were not playing perimeter defense, which was their strategy. And a lot of people felt it was disrespectful, but that was their defensive strategy, beat us out there. And so she's doing the same thing, right? She's making a gesture. She's a competitor. She knows she's good. From Angel Reese's perspective, she's been hearing about how great Caitlin Clark is and how they're going to lose because they have the best player and blah, 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 blah. And so you win this game and you're up big, you're going to feel fired up and maybe you're going to feel disrespected by the media. I don't think that she was disrespected by Caitlin Clark. She's disrespected by the fact that all she's hearing about is that she doesn't matter and Caitlin Clark matters. And it would be in reverse. If Caitlin Clark was the quote unquote underdog in this rivalry between the two, then maybe she'd feel the same way. But I think what you saw afterward, and this is why I like talking about things after the fact. I know that sometimes in content creation, you want to be like right out on it. But us talking about this a couple of weeks after the fact, we get that perspective. Both of those girls handled the situation flawlessly, in my opinion. When they've been interviewed and asked about it, they all said the right things because you know what? To your point and my point, they didn't see it the same way that all these other people wanted to inflame it. You got your Kendrick Perkinses and all these people that are paid to gaslight. They're paid to have some of the shittiest opinions on television just to have a shitty opinion. And yet the two people that are involved are like, you know what? Respect. Because I respect how good they are. I know how good I am, but I know she respects how good I am too. It was overblown. The one thing I thought was like laughable was the vice president or the vice president's wife, Joe Biden, saying she wanted to have both teams to the White House. And in my mind, I was like, that is never how White House visits have worked. This is not a participation award. Caitlin Clark and Iowa had a great season. They did not bring it home. They do not deserve to go to the White House. I thought that was actually incredibly disrespectful. And I backed Angel Reese for saying, you know what, I might not go. Well, I think that uh, Iowa's coach, I believe, even said, like, thanks, but no thanks. Like, I be- you know, she said, I don't want, no, that's not how this works. It's for the champs and the champs alone. They earn this, they go, that's it. And not to sit there and beat a dead horse, but you said it, man. It, it's just people in the media want to incite all this stuff. And it, some of it just brings out the worst in people. When it, instead of celebrating the competitors in the moment, uh, we always seem to, when I get that's their job, like you said, but it, it brings out the worst in people sometimes. And then you just go down this whole rabbit hole of debates to start that have nothing to do with what actually happened on the floor, which was just a great basketball game against two, between two great basketball teams. These narratives take away from the game and the women's game can't really afford that because it needs traction. It needs people to be respectful of the play on the court. And that's one thing that we've not seen. And I myself have been guilty of saying they play great fundamentals and I don't want to watch that kind of thing. I think that the game has evolved. I think that as athletes as a whole in this country have become more fit and nutrition has gone up and all of these great enhancements to how we take care of our bodies, athletes have become more and more pristine. I mean, look at the way that guys look in the NFL. You go back 30 years, guys didn't look like that. Baseball players, they look like my dad's friend Carl, right? They did not look like they look today. I mean, Ron Karkovice, go look up Ron Karkovice if you're listening right now, and you're going to see a guy who does not look like he ever should have played baseball. John Cruck, man, right? Oh, Crucky. Yeah, exactly. There's tons of guys like that. And so, The game has evolved, and I think that one of the things that I've noticed is that there is a little bit more parity in women's college basketball than there used to be. While there used to be one or two good teams, now you maybe have seven or eight good teams. 
it's only going to get better from there. The more parity there is, the more palpable the product is, and the more people like us are going to watch it. And I think the other aspect, a lot of people who had opinions about this, that was the first time they'd ever watch women's college basketball. So like, if that's the first fucking game you're watching, sit it out, people. No, you're right. But again, it's not great the the reason people maybe showed up to put eyes on it, but the fact that there were eyes on it is a good thing. And I think it's going to come out being net positive as we move forward. And you mentioned parity, and I think that's great, man. That's super awesome for uh, for women's basketball. And I, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing how things go next year, truthfully. And then even you know with some of these exciting players and personalities and moving on into the, the WNBA even and maybe bringing some of that fire and passion to the WNBA. Yeah, and the WNBA is another product, and I know that there's a lot of arguments to be had, and honestly, I've not seen enough numbers to be able to have a meaningful discussion with anybody about this, but I was blown away when this past offseason in the WNBA, Brianna Stewart was the big free agent that was out there, and then when I saw that she signed for 260 k a year, and that's their big free agent, I had never considered how little they were getting paid. Now, obviously, that's a lot of money to you or I. That's probably like double, triple a lot of people's salaries. But comparative to what these max contracts get in the NBA, and I don't know what the money says, like what kind of disparities there are. But like, did you know in the WNBA, there's a rule that owners cannot charter planes for their team? I did not know that. Yes, it's illegal. It's like a competitive advantage for a team. And I think a team recently, maybe this past year, got in trouble because their owner was rich enough to be able to charter private air, air airlines for them. And that's against the rules because that's how low on the totem pole the WNBA is. So maybe you're right. Maybe this energy can can translate to that. I mean, I won't know. Uh, you know, we won't know for a while, I mean, but I guess we'll see. But last thing on this game I want to ask you about, Kim Mulkey. I said she was certifiable earlier. I think I said batshit crazy. She's a hard personality for me to like. And I see her as a Bob Knight type. Now, I will sit here and tell you that Bob Knight is a virtuoso head coach of basketball. The guy could coach anybody in anything, and he was excellent. As a human being, though, certainly a lot of things that were not particularly great. And I think Kim Mulkey shares some of that, not nearly as much of the violent part. I mean, I don't think Kim Mulkey ever like choked any of her players or anything like that. But I don't know. A lot of people wanted to be happy for her because, hey, she won a national title in her home state and all that. But there's just something about her that I've never really liked. But you said she was crazy, but I just don't know really how you feel about her. So I wanted to see how you felt and take the temperature of how much of a Mulkey fan you are. Well, I think she's the, she the first women's basketball coach to win two championships at two different schools. Something like that, maybe, yeah. Probably likely that that's the case. I think she's good for the game. I, I mean, she... It wouldn't surprise me if she turns on a little bit, like amps it up some, because she probably knows it's good for the game. Uh, between her flamboyant personality, her flair and fashion with the crazy outfits she wears, and, you know, she's got that thick, you know, Louisiana accent and kind of just speaks off the cuff a little bit, you know, in press conferences here and there. And it's, while it's unique, she does come across as being a little crazy for sure. She doesn't seem like the type of person you'd want to be on her bad side. But I do think that ultimately, like I said, I'll say it again, it's good for the game, man. It brings eyes. It's a character. It's something, it's someone for people to gravitate to. You know, that's the reason that someone turns on the game because like, hey, I heard about this crazy lady that coaches LSU, man. Let's watch this for a few minutes. And then maybe, hey, but this actually isn't as bad as I thought it was, you know. And then next thing you know, you got another uh, women's basketball fan. I saw a great meme that showed her next to Ric Flair. And it was basically like a carbon copy. That's wonderful. Uh, that's a great comparison. I like that a lot. I do too. 
Stay tuned for part two of this week's episode. The opinions and viewpoints expressed on the Iceman and Coach Sports Show are those of Matt Freights, Brad Powell, and their guests, and not necessarily those of the Matty Ice Media Network. The Iceman and Coach Sports Show is exclusively owned by Matt Freights and Brad Powell and is brought to you by the Matty Ice Media Network.